Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Show notes and additional episodes are available at kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog at comlawmonitor.com. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Welcome to the latest installment of the Kelly Dry Full Spectrum Podcast. My name is Josh Guyon. I'm a partner in the Communications Practice Group. And I'm Chip Purkaitis, also a partner in the Communications Group. Today we wanted to follow on a, a podcast that was posted uh, back on February 4th regarding the FCC's so-called C-band proceeding because a draft order was released uh, on February 7th that was that's intended to be adopted uh, at the FCC's open meeting on February 28th. And so we wanted to touch on a few of the um, main points uh, and things that we think are interesting from this draft order. Um, as I said, that, that's not yet adopted, but will be likely at the February 28th meeting. Uh, the so-called C-band is a 500 megahertz segment of spectrum from 3.7 to 4.2 gigahertz, um, which is now mostly used by satellite companies to beam content to video and audio broadcasters, uh, cable systems, and other content distributors. Um, the report and order um, that we have a draft of would reform the use of the C-band and make most of it available for flexible use, um, potentially for 5G. Essentially, this order would clear the lower 280 megahertz of the C-band, so that's from 3.7 to 3.98 gigahertz in the contiguous United States, and make it available for flexible use uh, via a public auction. The 20 megahertz just above that would be would serve as a guard band. That's 3.98 to 4, 4 gigahertz, and then the existing satellite operations would be repacked into the upper 200 megahertz of the band between 4 and 4.2 gigahertz. Yeah, Josh, this uh, order is a long time coming. Uh, the commission, though, has moved with uh, quite a bit of alacrity. Uh, back in uh, April 2018, they issued a freeze order and also opened a window for Earth Station licensees to uh, register if they had not registered uh, where they're using the C-band. Uh, and that was followed by the NPRM later in 2018 and then in 2019, uh, two major public notices raising a number of legal and regulatory issues. Um, and know, asking questions about you know specific proposals and things that have been coming in and, and things like that as well. So, right. There were yeah. quite a few disparate uh, technical proposals as well as proposals regarding uh, whether and how to auction the spectrum right. and uh, who was entitled to relocation, who was to be treated as a licensee. We won't go into all of that today, but I, I did want to make a few other points about the broad uh, strokes about the draft order, and that is that uh, post the end of the transition, which would be September 2025, there would be two allocations. The flexible use allocation would be a mobile allocation except for aeronautical services. So one type of uh, application that won't be available uh, in that allocation is uh, communications links with drones, for example. Um, and also, uh, there will be two distinct allocations at the end of the transition. So FSS, fixed satellite service operation, will not be possible on a secondary basis uh, in the 3700 to uh, 4000 megahertz band after the transition. And this also will only affect 
the continental United States. Uh, right. Alaska, Hawaii, and the possessions will not be uh, affected by this transition. Those will remain fixed satellite service only bands. And I think that they said that was largely because the, the, the need for the C-band and the, and the types of services that are existing in the C-band in those areas and, you know, Hawaii and Alaska and, and things that are, are even more important in those areas than, than they are in the, in the you know, contiguous U.S. That's right. And they also read the record to uh, not uh, have a strong push for flexible use operations in those areas uh, as opposed to the continental U.S. One of the interesting things is since the commission's draft order came out, all 123 pages and more than 700 footnotes, uh, last Friday, February 7th, there, there has been no lobbying to date uh, as reflected in the commission's uh, uh, electronic communication filing system, or ECFS. Uh, I'm sure that will change uh, because the uh, issuance of the draft order provides only a two-week window before uh, the Sunshine Act notice comes out before the February 28th meeting, right. at which point uh, lobbying will no longer be permitted. Um, so we expect a, a busy week in the docket probably next week. Right, right. And uh, another thing to mention, and, and we'll, this will be one of the themes of our uh, podcast today, is that you know speed is key here. There's a lot of parts, but the important thing uh, from the commission's perspective is to commence an auction by December 8th uh, of this year. And in order to do that, a lot of the pieces have to be in place in time for uh, you know, the eventual bidders to have sufficient information to value the spectrum they may be bidding on. And uh, so that it's going to be key that all these pieces are in place quickly. And uh, the, um, one of the most controversial issues that uh, was in the record, it was lobbied up until the, uh, the, the time that the commission issued the draft order, is whether under Section 316 of the Communications Act, uh, this realignment and the auctioning of spectrum that has been used by space station operators would constitute uh, a mere modification of their license permitted by the Communications Act or a, quote, fundamental change, uh, which was would be uh, you know beyond the authority of the commission to effectuate. Do uh, you want to comment on that, Josh? Yeah, I mean, just to reiterate what you're saying there, um, Section 316 allows the FCC to modify licenses, and modifies the key term there, if, it, if in the judgment of the commission such action will promote the public interest, convenience, and necessity. Um, but the FCC noted that courts have constrained their ability to modify um, to say that they cannot make a fundamental change to the license. And so what the CBA uh, or, or the uh, C-Band Alliance and the small satellite operators had argued, uh, mostly in response to the May 3rd public notice, you mentioned those couple of pu public notices from last year, um, that was the one that particularly raised this question, um, was that they considered this to be a fundamental change to their license. Um, and, and largely, they, they had several arguments, but the, I think the primary argument that remains controversial um, was this idea that you know right now in the spectrum that they have the entire 500 megahertz that, that they can use they have room to grow essentially and add new uh, customers um, and expand their services and and so even though I think it's pretty much uh, the FCC is certainly claims that it's uh, uncontroversial or settled that they will be able to uh, continue their current operations um, in the upper 200 megahertz when they're relocated um, 
I think that they essentially have already admitted that. Um, they would not necessarily have as much room to grow. And so the FCC uh, um, took on that argument and said, essentially, our analysis is whether they will be able to do the same thing, essentially, uh, after relocation as they're allowed to do now or able to do, or are doing now um, uh, in the full band. And, and we don't consider their room to grow or, or ad services to be part of the calculation. So that's something that I think could remain uh, potentially subject to to controversy or potential litigation. No, I think that's right. Um, it, it is worth noting that in the draft order, several times the commission uh, commented not only would they be able to continue to provide the services they're providing today, but even in the upper 200 megahertz, they'd be able to use the same sort of techniques that uh, allowed them to extract a lot of use out of the 500 megahertz to not only continue to satisfy their obligations toward existing customers, but that there would be some room, the commission didn't quantify it so much as to state that uh, there would be some room for growth. Um, but I think, right. I think we haven't necessarily seen the end of this issue. We'll see what comes out in the lobbying and you know, possibly something the commission wanted to avoid, uh, you know, a, a, an appeal of the order uh, to the, uh, the federal courts. Another interesting point uh, that the FCC made was in defending this um, position and their and their ability, their authority to to modify these licenses was to say that well, and keep in mind that these these operators are going to have all of their reasonable costs reimbursed as well, right? So essentially, uh, essentially the um, these are you know they're they're going to be held harmless, right? They're they're going to receive all their costs for um, re, uh, for moving, and therefore you know they're they're not um, their license and their services are not as harmed as they would be if they weren't getting reimbursed. And, and it kind of raises a question of, um, okay, so you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit later about how the costs get reimbursed and what get reimbursed and, and the logistics of that. But um, let's just say that you know, after uh, that process occurs and they, they think in their, in their mind, those satellite operators, that their, their costs have not been appropriately reimbursed, that they think they're getting the short end of the stick on that. Um, does that then, at that point, you know, re-raise this issue of whether 316 has been met um, since the FCC has made that one of the kind of pillars of why they think 316 is, is, is uh, used appropriately here. So, but the timing there is difficult. It, it is difficult because that, that sort of issue might arise after the fact, meaning after the auction takes place and, and late in the relocation period. Um, and so, you know, the, the question is, well, what could the courts do about it or what would they do about it at that point, even if the uh, space station operators, uh, you know, are able to make a case. Uh, the commission certainly uh, predicated its conclusion on uh, the, the incumbent being fully reimbursed uh, in order to uh, make its decision. So, you know, that some of these things are going to happen after the auction takes place. And uh, you know that that'll be worth watching again if 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 that issue even arises. Uh, one of the other interesting points that the commission grappled with was that this type of uh, treatment of the space station operators might set a precedent for changes in other bands in the future. Uh, but the uh, you know the commission uh, you know tried to limit the ruling in its draft order that this ruling would be uh, limited to these particular facts and circumstances, and they. You know, pointed to the fact that these are non-exclusive licensees, um, a very different situation than if the uh, incumbent licensees were, uh, you know, 
holding exclusive access in the band, and the commission was trying to uh, change the authorizations. But uh, you know, it, it, it's a uh, it's an interesting question whether this might set a precedent, uh, almost a, uh, a never-ending fluid use it or lose it type of uh, uh, principle that could be applied in other situations. Right. So the second issue that we wanted to tackle was a little bit of the logistics for the clearing of the uh, lower portion of the band, the 3.7 to the 3.9 gigahertz by the uh, incumbent uh, earth stations uh, and, sat and satellite operators. Uh, so basically the way the, the, or, the draft order sets this up is that they, it would define incumbent earth stations as those that were operational as of April 19th, 2018, the, that are licensed or registered in, in IBFS, which is the international uh, licensing um, system at the FCC, as of November 7th, uh, 2018. And then third, have timely certified the accuracy of the information on file with the FCC. That was part of the um, process that, Chip, you were talking about at the, at the outset here um, of, of confirming your use and your registrations. Um, and the FCC also uh, answered a, a question that had been uh, raised as, as part of this long proceeding about whether Earth Station registrations are licenses or not. They said uh, definitively they are not licenses because there's no transmission involved. Um, but it, they, the FCC also set up uh, a, a choice for uh, the incumbent Earth Stations, uh, largely based on some advocacy by ACA Connects about trying to transition a lot of the C-band operations over to um, fiber in, instead. And they wanted, they wanted an, the option that the, the operators um, could transition over to fiber. And so the FCC does allow that option. They basically provide a choice that says you can either uh, one, accept reimbursement for the reasonable relocation cost to maintain satellite reception, which means stay within the, the upper 200 megahertz of the, of the C-band, so moving, um, you get your cost reimbursed. Or uh, your second option is to accept a lump sum reimbursement for all of the incumbent Earth stations um, based on the average estimated cost of relocation of all their Earth stations. And essentially, the Wireless Bureau is being directed to release a public notice by the end of September of this year, announcing what those lump sum uh, sums would be per incumbent Earth station and the process for electing those. Um, but it's, it, there's an interesting question there raised about uh, how the owners of incumbent Earth stations go about making that election and um, the fact that it, it seems, according to the, the order as we were reading it, that it has applies to all of their earth stations. No, I think that's right, Josh. It, it, it's uh, kind of an either or situation. And, you know, that the, there may be very different considerations depending upon how many uh, earth stations uh, an earth station operator has, whether they're being operated for their own, uh, you know, business reasons. Uh, there may be a lot of earth station operators out there that that have a mix where they may be uh, contractors or subcontractors uh, and have obtained the uh, earth stations uh, registrations uh, on that basis. And uh, you know how you decide where you have very limited flexibility, either accept lump sum for all of them or only uh, be able to get relocation if you're moving to that upper 200 megahertz. You mentioned the fiber. I think the order is very clear that if you move to fiber, the only reimbursement right. you might get is <clears throat> if you elect lump sum for all, right. um, where uh, it, it's not as clear, although it seems that uh, if you were, instead of moving to the upper 200 megahertz, there was 
uh, some benefit or the better choice would be to move up to the KU or KA band. Uh, even if that didn't involve additional costs, uh, that earth station operator, uh, unless it has elected a lump sum for all of its stations, may be uh, precluded from getting any uh, cost reimbursement. So we'll, we'll have to see whether the commission uh, uh, in its final order includes any uh, additional flexibility uh, to deal with these issues. Yeah, and that could be in reaction to uh, people seeing this issue and uh, lobbying in the next week or so, as we mentioned. So the next thing we wanted to drill down a little bit on is the is the money, basically, right? Um, uh, the clearing costs, reimbursement, as well as acceleration payments. Uh, so essentially, the order, uh, which I think is, you know, we always everyone expected here that, that the FCC would set up a process for covering the relocation costs. Um, and so they do that. They say that the um, C-band current users will have the relocation costs reimbursed uh, by the winning bidders or, or the flexible use licensees in the C-band auction. Um, they estimate those costs of relocating everybody, and that includes the space stations and launching satellites and moving the Earth station operators as well, uh, filters and everything else that's needed, um, to be between $3.3 billion and $5.2 billion. Um, they said that compensable relocation costs includes all reasonable engineering equipment and site and FCC fees, as well as any reasonable additional costs that the incumbent space station operators and the Earth station operators as well may incur as a result of relocation. This also includes what the FCC calls soft costs, such as engineering, consulting, and attorney fees, um, but there is a rebuttable presumption that the soft costs should not exceed 2% of the relocation hard costs. Um, if a party does exceed those, that 2%, essentially they'll bear the burden of showing that those costs were reasonably and unavoidably incurred. And that's consistent with what the Commission has done in some of the other uh, relocation uh, contexts, uh, such as the 800 megahertz band. I think that 2% right. uh, figure is one that they you know, drew upon their past precedent. Right, and we've got five satellite operators out of the, the, the eight uh, that the Commission mentioned. There are only five that had existing contractual service relationships to serve the contiguous U.S. as of February 1st of 2020, so that's the cutoff. And so those are Utilsat, Intelsat, SES, Star One, and Telesat. Those are the ones that are eligible for having their costs covered. And then as far as Earth stations go, their costs to my, uh, include the cost to migrate and filter Earth stations, including retuning, repointing, uh, and installing new antennas and filters and compression software and hardware. Um, the flexible use licensees are required to, to pay as a condition of their new licenses their share of these costs based on the pro rata share of their gross winning bids. And there's a process set up where they essentially um, are, are invoiced or receive you know demands for for payments on kind of a six month tranche basis um, that, that's set forth in the order. Yeah, one one of the interesting points here is that uh, the small satellite operators, uh, which uh, you know are are, are foreign uh, licensed uh, operators that uh, are permitted to provide service in the U.S. pursuant to the FCC's uh, uh, market access policies. Uh, that uh, while the Commission uh, indicated, for example, in the context of the Section 316 discussion, that the small satellite operators, uh, so-called small satellite operators, are to be treated in the same way as the FCC satellite licensees, that, uh, you know, when we get down to sort of the brass tacks of will they be entitled to compensation, uh, it comes down to whether they actually are already providing service. So while they won 
the the one victory uh, that victory really uh, may prove to be uh, of limited use to them at least in this context uh, possibly in other proceedings down the road uh, that determination of the equivalence between FCC licensees and operators that come in by market access may have ramifications uh, in, in, in other bands. Yeah, so, and so the next to, to discuss is the acceleration payments. And as you mentioned, they, they've set forth a five-year transition process. Um, but as you said, the, the you know speed is key here for for pretty much everyone in the band, especially those that that potentially are going to bid on the flexible use licensees. They they've filed uh, a lot of papers saying we need you know to move quickly here. And so the FCC basically set out a process where uh, the the uh, incumbents have to move within five years, but they can uh, receive some uh, substantial additional money if they move earlier. Um, in a process that would end in, in 2023. So essentially, the way that would work is um, the space station operators can choose to accelerate their clearing. Um, they would have to meet the following deadlines. They'd have to clear 100 megahertz for terrestrial operations in 46 of the, of the top 50 partial economic areas by September 30th of 2021, and then clear the entire 280 megahertz um, by September 30th of 2023. And they have to hit both those targets um, for, to, to, do, to get the acceleration payments. Um, those acceleration payments, the FCC estimated as up to $9.7 billion um, that would be paid by the winning bidders. And I'll note that that is you know, substantially more than the estimated costs of actually relocating uh, the, the incumbents in the band. So the incentive payments are actually much higher than, than the costs of relocating. You know, one thing I would note, uh, in addition to what you said, is that the, uh, the second transition, uh, accelerated transition date of September 30th, 2023, uh, there, there, it is possible to uh, relocate by the, uh, the second date, uh, you know, the full 300 megahertz and receive accelerated payments, but it would only be for the, the second date, the, the, the first date payments, uh, you know, which, which is maybe 25 or 30% of the total, that would uh, not be available. Uh, and, and you would, even if you cleared the the uh, the first accelerated date. If you committed to that, um, if you failed to meet that date, uh, excuse me, if you met that date, uh, but then didn't meet the second date in 2023, you would actually lose the accelerated uh, relocation incentive payments that you might have received for meeting the first deadline. Right. You essentially have to pay it back. Right. So it's a it's a very strict uh, application and and. And, you know, a key issue here is we continue to see what lobbying there will be and what action there might be after the commission's order uh, by the uh, space station operators is whether these accelerated payments, uh, in addition to the general relocation rules, uh, are enough carrot uh, offered by the commission in order to uh, avoid uh, relocation. So those, uh, you know, those elections that have to be made by June 12, 2020 could be... Uh, you know, the first test of that. Although I think by then we're probably going to have the deadline for filing an appeal already have passed. And right. so they, they may file that out of an abundance of caution uh, and, 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 and pursue two tracks. Uh, that just remains to be seen. And the other important thing that I think mentioned here is that it's not just a, um, you know, each satellite operator gets to make their own decision. They do um, as far as whether they want to accept the acceleration payments, but um, at least 80% of the accelerated relocation payments as a, as a total. So entities that represent 80% of the, of the total amount of potential relocation payments have to accept acceleration 
for the FCC to actually then go forward with providing those acceleration payments and requiring that the flexible use licensees um, pay for those. So if if you know 79% of the total payments you know uh, entities elect, it just doesn't happen for anyone. Right. But the commission was pretty clear in the draft order. Uh, you know what the uh, calculated phase one and phase two accelerated payments would be. And right. to get to 80%, uh, essentially, you need both IntelSat and SES. SES. And if you have those two, you get to 80. If you don't have those two, it doesn't matter what the others do, you don't get to 80. So that's, that's how that will play out. Um, I think, finally, uh, we want to address uh, an issue that was you know, raised throughout the proceeding, uh, and in fact, was raised even before the proceeding, which is whether there would be point-to-multipoint licensees in the upper 200 megahertz. Uh, this was uh, something that the Broadband Access Coalition, uh, represented by a lot of the tech companies such as Google and Microsoft uh, and others, uh, had been pushing for even before this docket was a docket. Uh, the commission ultimately decided that uh, there would be no fixed-use uh, in the upper 200 megahertz, which is where the, uh, the proponents of point-to-multipoint services were, were hoping the Commission would allow non-exclusive coordinated licenses. Uh, the Commission uh, basically responded by saying that would complicate the transition, uh, or, you know, or the draft order would, would, would reach that conclusion <clears throat> as is, and that also the, um, there were a number of other bands where uh, those that wanted uh, fixed services could go. And, and in fact, uh, the flexible use licenses would also be available for fixed services in the lower 300 megahertz of the band. Um, so that, that issue was pretty decisively and summarily handled in the draft order. And uh, it, it, I think it's quite likely that, that that will be the final outcome in this proceeding. So um, with that, we're going to end our podcast today. We want to thank you for listening. Um, as we said, uh, there's still another uh, week plus of lobbying before the Sunshine Notice goes into effect uh, on the 21st of February. The Commission's vote is on February 28th, and uh, the order should be out, uh, if not that day, within several days after that in the first week of March. And, uh, you know, that'll be a time to uh, revisit what the Commission has done. And, and uh, while we don't expect any fundamental changes uh, to what's outlined in the draft order, uh, around the edges uh, there could be some changes. And for some parties, that could be uh, quite important. Thank you again for listening today. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.